This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hello, everyone. This is Rianne from Stories of Win, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Janine Quapis from Penn State University. In the Quapis lab, they study the epigenetic and molecular processes of long-term memory formation, storage, and updating, and we're going to hear more about that work and more uh, throughout this interview. So really excited to welcome Dr. Quapis. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rianne. I'm excited to be here. Good. And full disclosure, everyone, um, Janine is the, uh, she was a senior postdoc in my graduate lab. So I've got to see her kind of rise and establish her lab and everything like that over the course of the past handful of years. Uh, so I'm intimately or somewhat intimately familiar with her work. Um, so that's what, but I'm excited to kind of, you know, show everyone else about it uh, who's listening to this today. Yeah, it was really wonderful that you got to be a grad student when I was a, an old lady postdoc and I got to get to know you that way. <laughs> I know, so so long ago now, so long ago. No. Um, so we like to kind of begin this uh, interview by asking how you first became interested in research and the brain. Um, and so I'd love to hear all about that. Yeah, so um, I was a psychology major in college, and I didn't know that I, well, I didn't know I liked psychology until I was maybe my second year, and then I didn't know I liked neuroscience until I was almost a senior, so I kind of got really lucky and fell into it, and I had some really good advisors then who, like, encouraged me to pursue it, even though I didn't really have all those boxes checked in the list, you know, like a lot of students today would, so I got really fortunate in that sense, but um, I, I got very lucky. I got into a really good lab as a grad student. Um, so I think I applied. I only had enough money to apply to four places, and I only got into two of them. And they would have would have both been really good places to go. But um, I, I worked with Fred Homesteader, as you know, um, at UW Milwaukee, and um, he's really he had like a has a top notch lab, and I got very fortunate to get in there. That really. Um, I, I was always curious about the brain and how it worked, but I got very lucky to get in that situation where it was a really top-notch lab, and I was really encouraged to pursue things that I found interesting. And so from there, as you know, I did a postdoc with Marcella Wood at UC Irvine, um, where I started going more from psychology into the molecular basis of memory, and that's kind of where my lab is today. So we study really the the um, intersection between molecular mechanisms and behavior and try to figure out how memory works at a molecular level. So that's kind of how I got here. Um, it was very fortuitous, as I think a lot of people's stories end up that way. But um, I think I could have done a lot of things, but I think this is a really fun job because it's it's interesting every day to come into work and try to figure out how how the world works, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Um, so when you talk about kind of your initial interests, were there just certain courses that kind of grabbed you or you're like, it's not just psychology, it's the brain? Or like, was there a particular professor where you were like, I kind of want to model this person, I guess? Or like, what was it yeah. exactly? Yeah, it was, it was definitely like, um, I think it was biological psychiatry that was um, like the coolest class. And I was warned to not take this class because it was supposed to be so hard, you know, and I took it. Um, and I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever that we could 
that, that I didn't even realize, I think at this point in my life that we knew like what drove behavior, like that we even knew enough about the brain to be like, this is how a neuron is thought to work. And this is how a synapse might support memory formation. And when I took that first class that like broke down memory at a biological level, I just thought it was the coolest thing that we could like explain behavior at a molecular level inside the brain. And really like to this day, I still think it's the coolest thing in the world. That's why I study it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, and so it was, memory from the start there was that was kind of your interest that kept you going yeah i th i thought about doing like addiction stuff when i was like applying to grad school um i don't remember if the labs that i applied and didn't get into if they were maybe more addiction <laughs> um but it was kind of half and half and then it ended up just being that i went to a memory lab if i had studied like addiction stuff it definitely would have been from a memory perspective though so um mm -hmm. it was always memory from the start <laughs> Cool. And so then you get into grad school and what are those first kind of few years like and what is it like, like what kind of lab in terms of the size and I guess um, as like Fred was as a mentor too? Yeah, um, I had no idea what I was getting into. So the, the students we take in my program today are so much better prepared than I was. Like they know what they're getting to. They've done tech jobs and things like that. And they know like what a lab is like. But I was at a really small liberal arts college where the lab was basically me going in when I felt like it. And like once the PI, you know, the, the professor had taught me how to do like a surgery, I could just do them whenever. And it was, it was very loosey-goosey. Like it was really good hands-on experience, but I had no idea like that a grad student worked, you know, more than 40 hours a week, like they were in the lab and it was a job. Like I remember having to learn that, like the first couple of weeks I would just show up when I had something I knew I needed to be in like a class or something. And I didn't understand that it was like a job that I needed to be there all the time for when somebody wanted to show me something. Um, and it was really that sort of change in perspective, I think is when I got to be successful or more successful because I just, I really didn't know how it worked until I got there. So it was, uh, Fred's lab was, um, I guess medium size when I joined. So he had taken me um, along with two other students that same year. So it was a cohort of three coming in. And he had recently taken a few students. He was really successful with grant funding around that time. And um, it was really nice because people in that lab, like, were very aware that, you know, when new students come in, it's our job to train them. So they were all really kind and, like, taking me under their wing and, like, showing me how to do stuff. But, like, in retrospect, I, like, I didn't know how to use a pipette. I had no idea, like, any of the basics. I didn't really understand what a Western blot was even looking at when I first started. So it was a real steep learning curve. But um, having those people around who were like, oh, I was in this position once too. I understand what that's like. Like, let me teach you. And then having the, the sort of initiative to like figure it out if I didn't know it right then, like not just to say, well, I don't understand this. Like, I'm just going to not worry about it, but like to go home and figure out like what I didn't understand. Um, those two things really, I think, brought me up to speed. It did take me quite a while to get to grad school. It took um, seven years, which is a lot longer than most people. But um, considering like how green I was when I started and like how I, I really didn't have a lot of experience with just basic experiments, um, I think it makes more sense now. Like I think at the time I was frustrated, but um, I'm kind of glad it took a little bit longer because I think those extra years like were really, really productive and and um, I needed a little bit of extra time to come up to speed, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say you published a lot during that time period. So I think like it was well worth spent time. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like those last couple of years when like you finally know what you're doing and you're super productive where most students leave and I was just still there for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like, you know, having three, three of you guys starting at once and everything? Did you feel 
like, was it competitive or what was that kind of like? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I can just tell you who they were. So it was Tim Jerome and Nick Balderston. So Tim and I were both doing like animal research. We were doing very similar things and Nick was doing human research. So it was a little bit different, but I remember actually coming in being very new. And like, I think the day I started, Tim ordered his first group of animals. Tim has literally <laughs> across the board, always been just like the fastest person I know at everything. And that's to this day, he's already tenured. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I, I remember at the beginning feeling like I was very behind, but it didn't take long to sort of figure out how things worked. And it ended up being really, really nice because like Tim and I were each other's buddies on like every experiment. So you'll look at, if you look at any of Tim's papers, I'm generally the second author and vice versa. For him, we were really good at working together, which is really nice. We're both like very ambitious, I think, and um, and and motivated to be in the lab and and, you know, really we were working on pretty different things once we kind of settled into our project. So it really wasn't so competitive and ended mm -hmm. up being like Fred's, Fred's lab at the time was very, I think unique in that like all of everybody in the lab sort of pushed each other to do really good work and to work really hard, but also were like each other's friends outside of lab as well, which is really nice because I think lab can be really hard. And I, um, I don't think, you know, in my own lab, I, I really try to hire people who I think are going to get along because I don't want the lab situation to be adding to that misery that sort of happens when you're working really long hours. Um, so some of it's stressful that you can't help, but at least if you're working with people you like, it's not, it's not always all bad. That yeah, no, really I negative. definitely agree. <laughs> no, I, I tell science can be hard and there's those ups yeah. and downs and it's, it means a lot to have the kind of support and like, you know, when something doesn't work to be able to go to someone and just be like, something didn't work. <laughs> and they could, you know, give <laughs> yeah, you that even if they can't solve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just be like, yeah, I know it's really hard. I feel <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Having people that you like in lab <laughs> makes life a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so in this time when you know you're kind of having that supportive group around you, um, what was your uh, dissertation project? I know you have a lot of different uh, publications and stuff. What was kind of your main project? Yeah, don't ask me the title because it was really long, but um, it was basically um, at the time I was really interested in trace fear conditioning, which is um, kind of a variant of fear conditioning where you just separate the two cues over time. And by doing that, you make the task really difficult for the animal to learn and you sort of change the brain structures necessary for memory. And we think it is really important because it relies on a lot of structures that are required for explicit memory and sort of more conscious memory. So we wanted to figure out how extinguishing those complex fear memories was different from extinguishing a delay fear memory. And nobody really was doing this at the time. So basically went through and like characterized what parts of the brain were different and how they were different. And we, we found kind of the basic finding of that was that the amygdala wasn't actually really important for extinguishing uh, trace fear memories. We know it's required for delay. It's sort of the basic circuit. But when it came to these more complex trace memories, we think they're kind of shifted to a more distributed cortical circuit. So what we know about how basic delay memories are extinguished probably isn't as accurate as like the typical type of complex memories that humans make. And then mm -hmm. From that, the stuff that I'm really that that kind of carried through my work that you probably heard me talk about before, um, <laughs> I came up with this really harebrained idea that well, we have this complex memory and we don't know what brain structures it requires. Um, so what if we could take that complex memory and update it or shift it to a more basic, simpler circuit? So I basically took these animals that were trained with trace conditioning and just gave them one pairing of a delay fear memory. So one 
um, white noise that co-terminated with the shock. And then we asked, can that take this complex cortical memory and make it rely on the more basic circuit? And we went through and like tested different nodes in the circuit out and basically found, yeah, like after that single trial of delay, now the memory looks exactly like a delay memory. So the mm -hmm. amygdala is required again in the cortex that those regions that aren't required for delay um, now are no longer required again. So, so I've been kind of intrigued with this idea of memory updating as a way to simplify memories or um, to change memories to make them less aversive, for example, um, or to model the type of memories that we experience on an everyday basis. That's super interesting. So the, um, so my memory background is not as good as it should be, but in terms <laughs> of, so the, the delay versus the trace, just the basic difference is this time, time period in which the cues are terminating yeah. basically yeah so so in normal delay fear conditioning like in our in our setup we would give a 10 second white noise cue and that would end with the animal getting a shock so there's no no gap in time between the offset of the white noise and the onset of the shock and in trace conditioning we give the same exact cues but now after the tone turns off or the white noise turns off we have a 20 second trace interval when nothing happens and then okay. the shock is presented. So the animal has to remember, oh, 20 seconds ago, I got this white noise cue and they have to be able to associate those over time. So just separating them by a little gap in time makes it a lot, a lot more difficult for the animal to learn. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, like what, what exactly is going on? And that's even such a short period. Do you, yeah. do you see the same with like, if you were to increase the period, the time period, is it what do you think like different structures are getting recruited basically? Yeah, there's there's definitely an upper limit. I think it has to be the separation has to be uh, somebody has done all this work and it's just been a long time since I've done it myself. But um, Marie Gilmartin, if you haven't looked at her research, she does a lot of the school stuff. But um, cool. Yeah, I, I want to say it has to be like at least three seconds separated for the hippocampus to be engaged. But if it's too long the animal just can't learn it so mm -hmm. um, it probably does change its structures but marie did some really great work as a graduate student showing that there are neurons in the prelimbic prefrontal cortex that seem to track that trace interval and then when she was in fred's lab she used opto to just turn off those neurons either during the cs during the u so during the white noise or during the shock or then just during that trace interval between the two cues and she mm -hmm. found that the, the neurons in the prelimbic just during that trace interval are really important so mm -hmm. she thinks that those neurons are sort of bridging that gap between the CS and UCS. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to like try to say like stay focused, look at focus on this task potentially. Exactly. Yeah, and and separating the cues over time like you have to have some sort of um, kind of active memory of what happens. So that's how it, we think it sort of shifts that memory to be more explicit and cortical based and more similar to sort of what a human would be doing. Cool. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> You're really so, testing my memory here. What do I remember from graduate school? I know, I know, right? So it's, it's always fun to journey back. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so you, you know, establish all of these really interesting uh, kind of circuitry work from your graduate studies, and then you kind of look to see, you know, what's next. And I know where you end up, but how yes. did you kind of make that decision? Oh, this um, is such a funny story, actually. So um, when I was at UWM, probably halfway through my career, um, Tom Carew came out and talked in our local SFN. I don't know if you know Tom, but he was at UC Irvine before I was there. Um, and I think he helped recruit Marcelo to UC Irvine. So 
Anyway, he was really, really kind. And he like came up to my poster and we were talking. He's like, well, what do you want to do for a postdoc? And I was like, I want to study epigenetics, like knowing very little about it at the time. And he was like, you have to look up Marcella Wood. So I I think um, that's like when I first looked at Marcella's lab and like kind of kept an eye on it for the next three or four years or however long I still had. Um, And yeah, when it got time, I like reached out to Marcello and like really wanted to join the lab. Um, And I had a couple of other labs I was really interested in, but I really had an eye on it ever since Tom pointed pointed it out. He probably has no idea who I am, but um, (laughs) it was, uh, it was really formative for me though. So um, I reached out to Marcelo, went out for an interview and like loved it there. Of course, Um, there were a couple other places I was really seriously considering that I also really liked, but it's hard to argue with Southern California, as you know. (laughs) Yes. Yes. As, as you know, (laughs) Um, but um, so you started, so then I guess how, what was it about epigenetics that kind of brought brought you, you know, interested into it in the first place. Yeah, I, I took like a eukaryotic gene regulation course at UWM and like kind of is honestly like the same way I fell into neuroscience in general. Like I took it and I was like, man, nobody knows how this stuff works in memory yet. Like, or, or they're still figuring it out. It was still pretty new at the time. Um, and I just, I, I just thought it again was so cool, like how cells can have like a sort of um, memory of what's happened basically. So I just found it really intriguing. And um, I mean, I kind of knew for a while, like, the more I got into neuroscience and figured, you know, we can really like objectively say how stuff works. Like we can test this out. And like, the more I got into them, the more I got like directed toward things happening at a molecular level where it's even more minute what's happening. And I just always found it intriguing basically is the the sort of short answer to your question. I won't continue to blather on, but I just think it's (laughs) so intriguing. I mean, the fact that cells can like stuff happening at a molecular level can change how you behave is just mind-blowing yeah yeah no definitely right um so so now you had started your postdoc at uc irvine in uh marcelo wood's lab um studying epigenetic uh processes of memory formation and i guess um what kind i mean what exact projects did you kind of start when you started there and then how did that kind of transition to a point where you were like i want to continue and you know do my own independent work um, and start my own lab yeah um so i kind of started with a couple of projects so um i i came back in with this um this updating project where i was like i really want to study memory updating at a molecular level but marcelo's lab does this um memory uh object location memory paradigm and there's not really a way to study reconsolidation with that or memory updating so um as you know i kind of uh, made up this wild paradigm. And I was like, we're going to make this work. And Marcella was very nice. He was like, you know, you can do that as a side project, but that's not going to be your main focus. Like that's just very like niche. Nobody's going to be interested, which, you know, may be true still, um, but I find it interesting. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm like slowly trying to convert people to use the owl paradigm. So um, <laughs> we'll use this as our, our way to spread the word. Good. Um, Yeah. So that was like my side project. I was like, I can just figure out what's happening at a molecular level during this. But Marcelo was like, we need something that's like a major project. And it was very coincidental at the time when I joined the lab that the animal colonies were kind of overrun and people hadn't been maintaining some of the colonies really well. And we just happened to have these old mice on hand. So um, we said, well, these old mice, like they cost a lot to raise, you know, whether it was on purpose or not, like let's run them through some behavior. So I ran these old mice through behavior and we found these really cool effects where 
you know, these animals, not surprisingly, showed really poor memory in a spatial task and deleting H trajectory improves that memory like we would expect. Um, since H trajectory, I should probably explain, is a negative regulator of memory and it seems to suppress memory. And we found that if you get rid of this molecular brake pad, memory is really good. So um, my major project was trying to figure out what exactly that was doing and how that worked. Um, and as you know, we like identified this circadian gene that's really important for memory. Um, and you probably remember this at the time, but um, you know, we, we identified a really short list of genes. There were like four genes we pulled out. And one of those genes was the circadian gene, which my immediate reaction wasn't like, oh, cool, let's figure out what this is doing. It was like, I must have done something wrong. Like, why is the circadian gene coming up? Like, I did balance everything. And and we actually went back and looked at like um, a previous RNA-seq from the lab from Annie, and, and PER1 was in that as well. So uh, we did eventually come around and believe that it was a real effect. But I think my initial reaction was like, oh, this is something I've done wrong. I'm going to get in so much trouble um but so that that ended up being what i ended up taking with me and and um marcel and i had some pretty serious conversations about like what's going to be mine to take from the lab when i leave and he was very kind and not pursuing this gene so that my lab can look at it so we are now trying to figure out exactly what the circadian gene is doing in memory relevant brain regions like the hippocampus so um we've got unpublished data now that show that uh, per one is oscillating in tandem with memory. So memory is really good during the day in our hands and really bad at night. And that mirrors exactly what per one is doing. Per one is induced by learning during the day and restricted at night. Um, it's impaired in the aging brain. We've looked in um, other brain regions of interest, like some of these cortical regions important for trace ear conditioning. Um, we've seen that in the retrosplenial cortex, per one is functioning um, for different types of memory. So we think it's really potentially an interface between the circadian clock and memory and possibly other functions like addiction. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't gotten into that yet, but let me know if you want to, you want to collaborate. <laughs> <Of course>. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it's, um, I think per one's like exerting local circadian control over whatever mm -hmm. brain region it's in. So in the hippocampus, it's exerting control over memory formation and telling the memory when it's easily formed and when it's restricted. And I think it does that for other, other local functions as well. So I guess the, the end answer is that, yeah, I, I think by the end of my postdoc, and I think if you're doing it right too, you're like very excited to like go and do your own thing. And you're kind of getting frustrated because you're already fully capable of like asking your own questions and deciding what the next step is on your project. And you don't really need to run it past anyone, but like, obviously you're not funding your experiment, so you have to. Um, and so I think if it's all going really well, you're experiencing a little bit of frustration as you like have all these questions and you know what the next steps are and you've been really well-trained. You can write your own manuscripts and things like that, but you're still in the sort of training position. And so it's getting a little frustrating and you know, I think at that point that like you are ready to be independent, um, even though when you start your own job, like <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that like you have to learn on the job that you're not taught in the training. But um, yeah, that's yeah. sort of a different side of the story. <laughs> no, that makes sense. No, I, I mean, I love uh, I, I always I, I forgot about that story about the aging animals, but how that even just like came <laughs> through, you know, yeah. this like accident, essentially. And then you were like, you know, this is something that I can use to kind of create a whole, you know, string of projects and a whole new direction for the lab. It's really cool that you did that from the first place. <laughs> well, it, you know, it was very fortuitous. And like the thing about the aging mouse project is like, these animals were continually aging up. So like I had to drop everything I was doing and that had to be the priority. Like when they got to yeah. be 18 months, I had to be run ahead of something in place. So it really progressed very fast for that reason. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then right after, so you're like looking at how 
this kind of um, regulator that you know memory formation of HDAC3, how it's affecting in the aged brain, and through you know doing all of these different molecular experiments with the RNA sequencing data, you see these like small set of genes, and you're like, of course, my panic would be the same of being like, wait, some of these I shouldn't be expecting. What are yeah. these? This seems totally wrong. And of course, then you like continue to validate that, and then you yeah. keep seeing it popping up, and now again you've like taken something where you're like is is this an accident I don't know I guess I'll run with it and see and it's like becomes this whole other you know line of research for you and now uh you know it's just it's cool I think it's um you know you keep saying fortuitous but I think like it's clear like you take these opportunities and like (laughs) you like are able to kind of run with them because you have this vision of like what you could see as a project which is pretty (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah I, I definitely think like part of what you learn when you do research is like which things you should follow up on and which things you should just give up on because I also see a lot of students um following up on things where you're like you know and maybe maybe that's just me being um I guess jaded but like sometimes I feel like you can follow through on a project that's like really not producing results until you know it's time to graduate and you have nothing to show for it so I think it's both hand in hand knowing which things to pursue and which things to give up on um or which yeah. things just aren't working is also a real, real skill that you learn. No, definitely. Yeah. Can you speak more about like, how is it just kind of like when either, is it like a technique where you're like, this isn't working, I need to drop it or you're fine. You're like, you know, these results just aren't, aren't going well, this is the point. And do you think you see, cause in like your career, like, do, do you see people where you're like, they should be dropping that for X reason. And I wish they would, but I can't tell them that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I know other researchers research program enough to say like, oh, they really shouldn't be doing that. But I think within my lab or like, you know, every stage of the career, like people are working with like as a postdoc or as a grad student, like you see somebody pursuing something and and spinning their wheels and spending so long trying to get like a technique up and running when there might be an alternate technique. I think it can be technical, like. I, I think you should definitely pick the technique that answers a question that you're trying to address within reason. There's more than one way to do almost anything, though. So you have to figure out a technique that's within what you're able to do, you know, and do well. Um, but also, like, question wise, like, do you want to be doing a bunch of parametric stuff to, like, figure? I mean, to some extent, you have to, and that's really important to do to, like, figure out a sub threshold training or updating or whatever you're doing. But I feel like you could, you could you know, parametrically test out anything for, for years and you have to figure out when enough is enough and when to, when to kind of cut the ropes on that and move on to something that's important. Um, So I think it's kind of, it's both, I think it's both like trying to make a technique work when it's not, um, when you could pivot and do something else, but it's also like question wise, if you're, I mean, unless it's a really fundamental question that you really are, are, you know, that's driving your passion. Like if it's just a, you know, if it's a side question or whatever, like you need to know when to give up on that and when to not um, waste too much time. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so then you're beginning to pivot and go and create your independent line of research and you're continuing with per one, like you said, you're starting to find it's important in a bunch of different brain regions. How did you kind of decide 
what projects to begin first in your lab. Yeah, that, I think that's like the scariest thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I remember my first day, my first day of like starting my lab, I felt like lasted for 45 years because I was really <laughs> nervous. Like literally nobody even checked in on me. It was just me and like Cassidy, my technician at the time, yeah. um, starting in the lab together, which was really nice, by the way. I, if you can find like a a good friend who also can tech for you. <laughs> like I was very fortunate to have Cassidy starting with me because she helped take some of that burden off. But um, yeah, I kind of had a, I had a plan going in. Like when you're developing your job applications, you know, you're kind of proposing your first few experiments or like you're if you're writing a K award or whatever, you kind of know what you want to do. But deciding like the very first thing you do in lab is a little bit trickier. So I knew one of the first things I wanted to do was like, look at per one and look at memory across the day night cycle and do all of this stuff to like figure out what it was doing. Um, but the very first thing I did in lab, the very first experiment I did that worked was like just a simple cell cloning, um, mm. cell culture experiment. So um, I had taken some plasmids that Marcelo had shared with me, like, you know, the per one and whatever else. And I remember like bringing them on my little filter paper and like, you know, reconstituting them and trying to grow my own like colonies for the first time. And like, I'll never forget coming in the next morning and being like, oh my God, there are actually colonies there. Like Aww. I understand what I'm doing. And like, I mean, the first thing you do in lab is like the hardest thing because you're like, oh, I like didn't buy pipette tips or like yeah. whatever it is. Like you're like, I don't have it. Like I didn't realize that I didn't have it until I tried to do something with it. Um, But like, honestly, just coming in and seeing colonies and being like, okay, this works you know, outside of this magical bubble where everything was already set up when I came in, but like I can start from scratch and things still work. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that was like definitely like a really powerful thing, I think, to be like, okay, I'm not a fraud. Like this is real and I can do it. Um, yeah, I would say that. And then um, the other thing that I think is really cool, um, this really wasn't your question, sorry. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the thing that like I will never get over of being a PI is like walking into the lab and like seeing people just doing stuff that I, like I don't, I'm really bad at micromanaging in general, but like walking in and seeing my like lab just like doing stuff and I didn't tell them what to do. They just know what to do. Um, and they're just like in there doing experiments like on their own schedule. It's like the coolest thing to me, like work is getting done and I'm not directly there for it. Like that's, that's everything. Yeah, no, that sounds really cool. Well, you touched on it, I guess. So in terms of kind of how you see your mentoring style and I guess what did um what did you kind of get from your mentors that you decided to kind of take with you or leave um when you wanted to start up your own lab? Yeah. Um so I guess I can tell you what I was trying to do. So um <laughs> I feel like like there were different things that Fred was really good at and that Marcella was really good at, I think. Like, um, I think Fred was really good at like motivating people and and getting people to sort of learn these sort of rigid scientific rules and like asking the right questions to direct the the research forward and things like that. Like he and he's just like incredibly smart. Like like I, I always like to joke that Fred would always like you weren't sure if he was like awake when you were presenting, but then he'd raise his hand and like ask like the hardest question or like really just like <laughs> you know, laser dissect right to the point. And so he's really good at that. So I really wanted to take from Fred, like the ability to sort of motivate people and to hold people accountable and like encourage and like sort of motivate them to like do their work and to want to work hard. And then I think Marcelo's mentoring style was very different where it was more, um, you know, I, I feel like you treated me a little bit more like a colleague, maybe it's because I was a postdoc, like he, he kind of, um, we would have more back and forth, I think, exchanges. Uh, obviously, when I got older with Fred, it was more that way as well. Um, but but Marcelo was very encouraging and I think um, motivating in a really different way. Um, and I think he was more like, yeah, I don't know the right word for it, but definitely more like 
um, motivating you because you wanted to do well as, as well. So I really wanted to take both elements of those when I became a mentor. I don't know that I did that. It turns out that like, <laughs> kind of am who I am. And like, there's only so much that I can do to change that. I have learned a lot. I think in the past I've been here, this is, I'm almost with my fourth year. I started in 2019. I can't do math. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was having this discussion with Nikki and she's like, no, you've been here for four years. And I was like, have I? Um, but, but I think what I, I have learned that like my, what works for me as a student is not necessarily the way I should be mentoring other people. So I've always had pretty hands-off mentors where like, and I wanted it that way after I got comfortable in grad school, like I wanted to be able to make my own decisions, but um, especially when students come in, I find that they're actually way more comfortable if I'm meeting with them regularly and like checking in on them and, and, and giving them like regular feedback. So I do have a lot more weekly meetings than I had as a student or postdoc. Um, and, and I've tried to tailor that to the individual um, to some success. I think we're getting better at that. Some students really don't want or need that and other students really do want and need that. And I'm trying really hard to kind of meet the student where they want to be. And then the idea is that as they get more independent and they get through the program, then we're meeting less and less. So um, that's at least what I'm really trying to do. But it's for me, at least at this point, it's still a, really a work in progress. Like I'm still figuring out what works the best and what is maybe less motivating than I thought it would be. Yeah, no, I think that's a good answer. I think and, and I, I think it's the hardest is you know, realizing that your own style doesn't work for others. It's like, oh, like, yeah, that makes sense. But how do I then do, how do I adopt their style is yeah. really hard. Well, and like, to some extent, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe they should all like, like I really don't want to be a micromanager. I'm really just yeah. bad at being like, what are you doing this week? Tell me what you're doing and then yeah. tell me what you've gotten done and we'll check in again. And, and um, to some extent, I think the goal is really at the end of their grad career to get away from that. Like they don't, yeah. You know, if they're being successful, they don't need to check in every day with you. Like if, if you're running a successful lab, they are going to talk to each other to help figure things out. And then, you know, check in with me to make sure we're on the same page, obviously. But um, but I do want them coming in instead of coming in and saying, what should I do? Being like, I think I should do this or this. I'm leaning toward this. Do you agree? Um, that, mm -hmm. That's at least the goal. I don't know if we're we're I don't know if my mentorship style is really getting everybody to that point yet, but but we're going to keep working on it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Cool. So like now that you've been kind of a few years, right, running your own lab, what are some things that like you wish that, you know, you could have known, especially I think for, you know, women in science, like what is something that you notice also is different as being like a woman PI that's like particularly difficult, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely I would say like, if I could go back and do it, I would have just put a lot less pressure on myself that first year, like I, I kind of felt like there was nobody competing against me. But I felt like I needed to get that ex first experiment off the ground. And like my I could protocol ready to go like on day one, which it wasn't despite my best efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I just put a lot of pressure on myself to get everything out, out the door. And it turns out that like, yeah, I probably got the lab started really fast, but it still just takes a really long time before you have enough data to publish. It just takes time. That's the way science is. Um, as for like being a woman in science and what's different, um, I definitely think like I I'm lucky I'm in a department where they like really take these things into consideration. And I've had um, two female department heads, which is really nice. Cool. Um, so they, they get it and they get the way it works. They've, all, they've both been really, really, you know, cool and good at their job and, and very smart. Um, and, and I think they're very aware of it. But I do think I get asked to do a, like a lot of service. Like my department's really good about not handing service off to like the new yeah. brand new PIs, which is really nice. But like other things like committee service and things like that, like making sure there's a woman represented in this situation, like even outside the department, but like in the 
broader community, things like that. I think that's really typical for yeah. women to get asked to do things. And it's really hard. I find it's really hard to say no. Um, yeah. And I just find it's really hard to say no, because when I do try to say no, um, I just feel like the like it's really hard to do that in a way that sounds like kind and friendly and doesn't make you sound like you're not yeah. nice. Um, and that might just be me personally. Um, but but I definitely have struggled with that. And I found some solutions to that. Like one thing that I've been really um, lucky to have in the department is we have a really good mentoring committee. And there are a couple of people on that mentoring committee who have like explicitly said, like, say before you say yes to any service, like run it by me first. And if I don't mm. think it's a good idea, you can blame it on me. If I, I'll say no, your mentoring committee says you can't do that, you know, something like that, which is really nice to have somebody to like scapegoat for you, effectively, yeah. especially when you're new. No, that's great. I is that something that you looked for, like you know, um, departments or like institutions that have either a female department head or a mentoring committee when you were kind of deciding between you know where you were going to go to start your lab? I probably should have. I feel like my my interviews were such a blur. Like I feel <laughs> like I, you know I was quite nervous, and you know I had as you know like a new baby at the time, and it was just like a lot to handle at yeah. once. I feel like I don't know. I think if I could redo that, I probably not not that I ended up in a bad place at all. That's not what I mean. I just mean that like I don't know that I asked the right questions. I got very right. lucky to have fallen into a good department, but like getting a good sense for like whether they have a good mentoring committee or whether a lot of people will tell you like, oh, we have a mentoring committee, but like they don't actually meet and they don't actually do anything. Whereas ours like actually do actively meet and try to help, which is really nice. Um, yeah, asking that type of thing, like looking for a female department head or good female colleagues. I didn't realize um, until I was hired here at the time, I was the only female neurobiologist in the biology department, mm -hmm. many of us. And I had met with other neuroscientists outside the department, but it wasn't 100% clear to me at the time who would have been in my department and who wasn't and all of that. Right. So um, again, that was me like not being aware of it, but, and, and they've hired, you know, women since. So it's not, it's not just me anymore. Um, and even like the broader community has more women in it too, but yeah. um, that type of thing definitely, again, in retrospect would have been smart to pay attention to um, during the interview. But like I said, I was interviewing with the little baby. So it was a really good litmus test for who was family friendly and who wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely remember like when you were even scheduling your interviews that you were pregnant. And so you were like, yeah. they, they are going to have to know, I have to disclose like that you may, I, I don't remember if it was like that you may have to cancel if you're going to give birth. Like yeah. there was at least maybe one that was something like that. And it's like, yeah, like they have to know what your priorities are. And I think you're right. Like that was a good limit. It really, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> intentional, but um, yeah, yeah it, I, in my, my, my understanding was that the interviews were going to be later. So I was like, oh, I'll just postpone them. You know, we'll have them like, you know, in the early 20, 18 year, I guess it would have been because Coco was born in 2017. But it turns out that they were all like, while I was super pregnant and couldn't travel. So um, one place was really nice and like, let me interview. It was exactly two weeks before her due date. <laughs> I was like, so afraid I was going to go into labor during this interview. <laughs> this was, you know, on, on Zoom before Zoom was a thing. Like, I remember like wow. having to look up like, what software can I use for this? So I had to do like a chalk talk through the computer. But honestly, they were they were really great about it. Um, and they, they did eventually offer me the position. I wasn't their first choice, but like, I did appreciate they took it like seriously enough to like, mm -hmm. like legitimately offer me the position, even though they'd never met me in person. Like that was, 
um, I think a really good good thing for the de- good good sign for a good department. Um, and then I did actually come out to Penn State in person, and yeah, I had to like ask for breaks to pump and things like that, which was awkward. Yeah. And you know, carry my pumping bag with all of my milk around with me like the whole day. It was it was um, some places were a lot better at handling it than others for sure. And you really got to tell like who who would have been on your side and who who would have made things awkward. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it's really. I think it's really cool to see that you're like a mom and a woman scientist and a PI. Like I always love seeing, you know, obviously pictures of your kids and then also then like seeing a tweet of your paper that comes out. It's just like, you're just doing it all. (laughs) That is so sweet. Yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with my kids, as you know, I think they're like the coolest things ever. So I'll talk about them all day if you let me. Um, But yeah, I I didn't like, I didn't even think I wanted kids for the longest time because I think I kind of thought like you had to choose sort of like do I want to be really good at science or do I want to have kids and I thought like to be a hardcore scientist like I just didn't want to have kids and like that's the way I wanted it to be and then like I started getting older and it was like well if I want to have kids like we're running out of time here and um I just don't think there's ever really a good time so you just figure it out and and I guess just make it make everything happen the best you can yeah yeah no that's great (laughs) seems to be going very well yes (laughs) Yeah, they're they're real cute. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I think we're nearing the end of the interview, but you know, one thing that we always ask is um, you know, what do you love doing outside of lab? You know, mm. you, we talked about your kids that you can yes. include, um, but also, you know, other <laughs> things outside of um lab yeah. too. Um, I should have more hobbies. I should. Um, (laughs) I definitely spend most of my time with my kids, um, which is fun. So as you know, I have a four and a half, almost five-year-old now, and then Archie is like nine and a half months, so just less than a year. Um, So they take up most of my time, but I do, I still read quite a bit. Like I read every night before bed. So I spend a lot of time reading. Um, Those are probably the two, and watching trashy TV also, like, I mean, I really love, I don't know if you consider it trashy. I kind of don't. I look at it from a feminist perspective, um, but I actually really like The Bachelor and Bachelorette. I have a whole text thread with some friends on that. Um, I love that. I, I, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> I yeah, no, yeah, I'm, I think uh, I've always loved trashy TV, unfortunately for me, <laughs> but I do love it. And I know I can credit you to like really sparking my interest back into reading because you gifted yeah. me your old Kindle <laughs> when I was in grad school. You still school. have that? I know you still have it. <laughs> and yeah, and um, I definitely got really back into reading through that whole thing. And so- Oh, that makes me um, happy. Yeah. <laughs> but great. I think those are wonderful hobbies personally. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time to interview. I- Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. This is wonderful and really fun. Thanks for having me. Yay.